It's good to be back here, upstairs, uh, in this room. It was, we had a, I, had a, I had a good time. Did you guys have a good time last week, getting to know our pastor a little bit? A little, little tidbit. Today, actually, is his 22nd anniversary with Cindy. So text him tomorrow. Right now, he's probably having a nice meal and dinner with his wife. But they've been married for 20 years, and today marks the anniversary for that. So we're, I'm thankful that they... Uh, are faithful and still are, yeah, have been faithful and continue to be faithful in their marriage walk. Um, before we start, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you again to learn about your word as a means to grow in our sanctification, a means to grow in our joy. We come before you asking you to let illuminate our hearts and mind to your word we want to be obedient to you, and we fight with our we fight against our flesh. Our flesh wants us to go back to our old former ways. We know that you will empower us to be faithful to you, Lord. The means by which we can do that is knowing you and knowing your word more. And I pray for all of us tonight, as we study your word, uh, that we can love you more and love others as well. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. When you think about the structure of the human body, it is a very complex device. It's a really complex uh, thing. Everything in our body is connected, and it is, is amazing in how the Lord has made the human body and how every part works with one another. The bones work with the, with the, other, with the, with the muscles, and all the other organs work in harmony with one another. And every part of our body has a particular function. But have you ever thought, what holds everything together? Something like, oh, it's the bones, or no, it's the muscles, or the skin. And without those things, you might be, yeah, you might be like just a blob of meat or just a, a skeleton. But what is the thing that holds everything together? What's the thing that holds all the skin, the muscle, and the bones together? I Googled this and tried to figure out what is it. And if, and if I'm wrong, just blame Google for it. But they said there's this little protein called the lamnin, and this is protein that binds everything together. Without this protein, nothing in our body will be connected. And it is like the glue of the body that ensures that everything in, from our bones to our flesh are held together in place. When I think about the church, when I think about what holds the church together, the one thing, the glue that holds every ministry together, the, the, the thing that holds uh, our unity together is love. When we, as we close our little series that began in the summer, everything from unity, service, worship, confrontation, all of the all the things that we've covered, every different facet of ministry that we do, and, and everything that we do in church, it's bound together by love. First Corinthians thirteen, the, the passage that Austin is going to preach next week. Uh, it highlights the fact that the importance of love, that if you do not have love, even if you give up your life for someone, if there is no love, it is useless. Love is a central motivation as well as the connective tissue between everything that we do for one another in the church. What binds the church together is love. And if you've ever thought about without love, 
all that we do in this church, all that we do is just really just a bunch of self-righteous people doing nice things for each other. We're just a bunch of self-righteous people doing nice things for each other. It's not, if it's not driven by love, we're elevating ourselves. If it's not driven by the love of the Lord, we're doing everything for our own glory. All that we are as Christians are because of God's love towards us, and all that we do must stem from a love of God. There is a reflective nature to what we do and who we are. And I would argue that the chief attribute of our God is love. If you were to compare the God of the Bible to the God of all of the other religions, you'll find that the chief attribute is love. All the other gods are Baal, for example, is the God of, of the rain and for and fertility. Thor is the god of thunder. Ares, the god of war. All of these things are specific. But the one thing that defines our God, the overarching thing that ties all of his attributes together, I would argue, it's love. As we live out our church life, what should set us apart from the world is our love for one another and, and, and our love for the Lord. We love because God himself is love and, that, and because God commanded us to love. We want to be defined by love. And yet this concept of love is, is really easy to understand, but it is really hard to apply into our lives. We know conceptually what it means to love one another. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, you know that's all the attributes of love. But to practice these things are difficult. And the reason why we forget is because we forget God's love. Theology shapes our love. Studying God shapes us and changes our mind to love him and love others. The greatest command is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbors or love, or love your others as yourself. The length, of, the length of care that you put to yourself, you put to other people. The attention to detail that you give to caring about yourself, you're supposed to do that for other people. The extent that you will go to nourish your own body, that's how much you're supposed to go and care for other people. This is God's commandment for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. How can we do that? How can we do, fulfill the second commandment? How can we love others like the way that we love ourselves? How can we do that? How can we redirect our love that we naturally have for ourselves towards other people? And the answer is focus on Christ. Christ teaches us, and he gives us an example. He gives us instructions, and he lives it out for us. Our love must be outward because our God's love is demonstrated outwardly. If you want to fulfill this love command, Jesus gives us both a theological framework and commandment on how to do it. He gives us theology and, and practically how to do it. And as Christians, we need both in order to fulfill what it means to be a Christian, to be loving to others. We need other. We need both. We need the stronger our theological ground is, the more that we will walk faithfully. And if you want to love better, let us learn from the God of love Himself. Let us learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us use this time to just meditate on these short verses. Because Jesus gives us commands and example. Now, a little background about this book. This book is the book of John. It's written by the Apostle John. He's the disciple that Jesus loves. 
He's the one that's unique in that he's the, he was the last apostle. He wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the first to third John as well. And these are all things that are supposed to prove the divinity of our Lord. This book in particular is written so that people will know that Jesus is Lord. That he's not just like any other person that proclaimed to be Messiah, but he actually is God. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in, him, in believing, you may have life in his name. This book is to show us that our God is a divine God. All the miracles that he does, all the supernatural things that he can control, is will point your eyes and set them onto the fact that he is the God, that we, he's the one true God. When we get to this portion, this is the, the last night where he's with his disciples. This is around Thursday, this is Thursday night. This is the part, the next day, Jesus will be flogged, he'll be betrayed, he'll be nailed to the cross. So this is, in a lot of ways, the last type of Passover meal. This is the last Passover meal that Jesus will have with the disciples before the kingdom comes. But this is the last meal that they will have with Jesus before he dies, and, come, and the next time they'll have a meal with him is when he comes back to life. So this is... One of those things, psychologists, people say, like, usually you remember the first and the last. I'm sure all of the, the disciples remember this meal, the last meal that they had with Jesus before he was crucified. And I'm sure they remember the first meal after when he was resurrected. But they remember this. This is a crucial command because every other disciple talks about why we need to love one another. This chapter begins with the reality that God is the true vine, and, he, and, and we cannot do anything outside we cannot do anything aside from him, apart from him. And when we get to the beginning of our, he talks about how there are these true branches, and then there's those fake ones that gets casted out and burned. So he goes down and explains to this passage here about what Christ expects the disciples to in terms of the relationship to one another. These are the original 11. Judas at this point is gone. He's speaking to these 11 disciples. He's telling them what they need to do in the church. They must be a group of people that love one another. You understand that when Jesus is telling them these things, Jesus knows that he's going to be killed, but the disciples are still in denial. They haven't, they have that, that part of what Jesus is teaching hasn't fully clicked yet. In fact, in early in chapter 14, they, they, or end of 13, uh, Peter said, that he will, he's willing to die for Christ. And they were nervous and scared, and yet Jesus promised them in chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he promises them that, one, that he's, he's going to go away to prepare a place for them. But until then, until they, until, for the time that they're still on earth, they need to love one another. The dominant theme in this portion is love, and it will be evident by the fact that Jesus will be dying for all of their sins. Love is behind all the command and promises of Scripture. Let's look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Again, this is not a new commandment. He said this in chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you want to be known and be distinct from the world, there has to be a love that you have for the other saints. If you want to be known by the world as a follower of Jesus, you must be known by your love for one another. Jesus said you must love, and you'll notice here in verse 12, this is my command that you love one another. In the Greek, this is in the present tense. This means it's an ongoing love. From this point on, you must continue to love one another. But notice there's a little difference here. Just as I have loved you. In the, in the English, it seems like it's talking about like a past tense, right? But in the Greek, this word love, have love, is in the aorist tense. It means, the word aorist is the idea of a horizon. It's this endless type of love. There's no beginning and no end. So what Jesus is saying, that you must love one another just as I have loved you before the foundations of the world. You must love one another the way that I have chosen you before the world has even come into existence. You must love one another just as much as I love you for you existed in this world. And this, is, and this is crucial because the love that Jesus wants us to express and show to one another is infinite. But yet we know we're unable to do so. We need to ask the Lord and he can give us the grace to grow in this area. It means that you are to love like Christ have loved us past, present, and the future. Jesus' love for his disciples and other followers is constant, and is constant from the eternity past all the way till he returns and, and into the eternal state. Jesus doesn't give us every little detail on what that looks like, but he does give us, he does tell us that we need to love on a daily basis. God's love for us is infinite, and our love for others begin when we experience God's love. In reality, again, we know we cannot do this. It is a seemingly impossible task because we, always, we will always fail in this area in loving one another. But we must still pursue it. Even though it is difficult, even though it seems hard, we must pursue loving one another. We must aspire to be more like our Savior in loving others. There are areas in our lives that we can improve on in terms of loving others and seeing them as more important than ourselves. We can always improve on our, in our thoughts about other people, in our heart attitude when people in the church sins against us. Because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, we're able to grow and fulfill all the things that God expects of us. We are to love others the way Christ loves us, and we're to love others in the way that Christ would love others. We're, we are to love others the way that Christ loved us, and we're to love others in the way Christ would love others. Jesus isn't saying in this verse that, you notice actually, uh, in verse 14, he said, you are my friends, and you'll do what I command. Oh, no, sorry, verse 13. Greater love is knowing that this, that one laid down his life for his friend. Now, he's not saying that the only way, the greatest love is only if you die for your friends, as if like dying for your family is not a good thing, or dying for strangers is not a good thing. But he's saying that this is just a general expression of the greatest love that you can show to someone is if you're willing to die for them. Jesus loves us, loved us while we were still his enemies. And if we were to emulate Christ, we must love those outside the faith, but especially those that are inside the church. And it's sad sometimes when, if you've been in the church long enough, there are people who say, like, I, want, I don't have anything to do with the church because the people in the church are super unloving. I think that's why, from ministering to different college 
campuses and different college Bible studies, I noticed that some people choose to date non-believers because they can't find people in the church that are loving. And I mean that in like, they, these people in the church are, can, has, ha, can potentially be the most unloving group of people. And we can't be like that because Christ tells us that we need to love in the way that he loves and the way we have to make sacrifices for others. Notice that Jesus begins by speaking of his own love towards them. He gives this example that if you, you are my friend if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves. And he, he continues on. He talks about how, uh, uh, but I have called you friends. And then he talks about how he will die for his friends. That a greater love, is, this greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friend. He, and Jesus is going to show this. He's not just saying this like hypothetically. He's actually going to demonstrate his, this, this to them in a few hours from now. The greatest way that you can develop love in your own life is to develop a friendship or, or a mentality of being self-sacrificing, that you think about others as more important than yourselves. The best friendship thrives on sacrificing for one another. And Christ loved them and was willing, and he did die for his disciples. There's a quote here uh, that I found that said this, As Christ became flesh to reach out and save sinners, we must exemplify the same spirit of self-giving to impact others. A willingness to identify with them in the spirit of the incarnation is vital. The challenge for all Christians centers in giving ourselves just as Jesus did. Now let me ask you this, what about you? If the highest expression of love is not possible, and I'm sure most of us struggle, and in reality, most of us will never be in a situation where we have to like, take a bullet for someone, but if that is the greatest command from the Lord, that we have to die for one another, one another, that the greatest expression of love is willing to lay down your own life, if we cannot do that, how are we going to expect to do that if we can't do the little things, the smaller things? If the highest expression of love is not possible but expected, how are you doing with the lesser things in life? How can we expect to fulfill the greatest commandment if we're unable to do the smaller things in life? A few weeks ago, Dale preached on Romans 12. And Romans 12, 10 tells, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Ephesians 4, 2 I guess we'll start. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll start from verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Philippians 2 4, uh, or 2 3. Uh, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There must be a daily devotion to serve and to love other people if we want to eventually get to this, the mental state of willing to lay down our lives for others in our life. First John 3.16 writes this. John writes, We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is a crucial command. It's a basic command that John understood. He remembered from this passage here in, in John 15 that the greatest act of love that you can show in the church 
is if you're willing to lay down your life for them. And if that's the biggest command, I'm arguing for the, big, the greater to less here. If that's the greatest command, then everything in the, that's smaller is something that we must do. We should be willing to expend ourselves because we love others in the church. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus says if you are truly his friend, you will do what he, say, what he says. Which sounds strange, right? I mean, imagining... If, like, my daughter grew up a little bit more and can talk to me, and she's like, if you really love me, you will do what I say. Like, no, no, I don't know. No, 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 that's, that's called manipulation, right? In our minds, we, that, that sounds strange because in our, in our thinking of friendship, there should be some sort of equilibrium, right? Like some sort of balance. Like, you do something for me, I do something for you. But in reality, there is no equal, e- e- equilibrium in our love between us and God because God has already shown an infinite love towards us. When God tells us to do as he tells us to love one another because that's his command, know that it's, it's infinitely smaller to what he's already demonstrated to us. God's love for us is infinitely more than anything that we can offer him. Our love for and towards God pales in comparison to the love that he has shown us. And the love that we show for one another is, again, it pales in comparison to the love that God has already shown us. If we were to truly grasp what is going on, what was given to us, and how great our, the, our Father's love is towards us, we will do what he says. Because if we are truly a follower and lover of Christ, his commandments are not a burden to us. If we are truly his friend, we will do whatever he says. Remember Romans 3 tells us that at one point we were all enemies of God, but yet we were, we were not only enemies, we were hostile, we hated him, we were alienated and separated from God. But because of what Christ has done, we're no longer enemies, but we are his friends. We're no longer hostile, but we're at peace with him. And we're no longer aliens and strangers, but we are a part of the family of God. God changed our standing from someone who hates him and and now has, and has a severed, broken relationship and, and mended us through the work of the Son. And now we, are now we are now called his friends. We show our loyalty to the Lord when we are faithful to his commands. The point of this verse is that the, is the, is the, if, you want to, if you want to be defined as a follower of Jesus, you will, want to, you will love one another. You will listen to what God has to say. If you're truly his friend, you'll do what he tells you. Again, this is not new to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Abraham was called God, a friend of God. Moses himself was also called a friend of God. And these two saints, these two patriarchs, they were known as a friend because of their faith in the Lord and their obedience to Yahweh. So, same it is for us. If we claim to be friends and followers of the Lord, we must actually do what he instructs. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus here is actually, actually, if you study most, if you study the book of John, he never actually directly calls anyone slave. He doesn't call any of his disciples slaves. It's only implied that because the way that they call him Lord you know, they call him Lord. So in, like, there's, at least there isn't any written account, account of them calling Jesus, calling Peter, like, you slave. He's never called them that. Um, but the idea is that slaves, 
at the time, they, they may be obedient. They, they, they may get a command from their master, but they don't know the, the reasoning behind it. And I think you guys understand that, too, if you're working in, like, a company. You know, sometimes the higher-up to make a decision, and they're like, okay, we have to change the policy. And you may not know why uh, that policy is in place. If you were uh, in the upper-up, if you're, like, you know, on the board or if you're one of those, like, main uh, directors, you might understand why certain policies are in place. And Jesus is saying that. He's just, he's just doing this general expression that friends are people that know exactly what he's doing. They're not just slaves and just doing his command blindly. But a friend knows and gets an explanation of why Jesus told them to, to love one another. They have Jesus to explain everything to them. They have a special place in history because they are the closest one in proximity to Jesus. They know his will because they know his teaching. And, they, and, and yet at this point, they haven't fully grasped yet until you know, Christ dies and comes back and the Holy Spirit enters into him, then everything clicks. But when it clicks, everything makes sense. All of Jesus' teaching become, it becomes clear to them. All that Jesus has heard from the Father, he taught them. Now, when did Jesus hear from the Father? Again, you notice this phrase, have heard. You notice that I have heard from my Father. Again, this the word have heard is the same one that we talked earlier about the word love, about the aorist tense, but how it's infinite. Where Jesus has heard this is in, in eternity's past. This shows Jesus' deity and the eternality of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He knows exactly what God wants because he is God. He was with God in all of eternity before creation. He knows the will and decree of the Father because he and the Father are one. All members of the Trinity are in complete harmony with one another. In in the beginning of the book of John, John chapter 1, verse 18 no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, Jesus, has explained him, the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 to 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Hebrews 1, last, last like cross-reference here, Hebrews 1 Verse 1 to 3, this is a very famous verse. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heirs of all things, through whom, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And he had made purification of sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All that Christ knows from the Father, all that Christ have heard from the Father, he was there because he is part of the Godhead. He's, Jesus existed in the past. He is in present now, and he will continue to exist. 
Jesus explains and shows them that being with the Father would be like if the Father dwelled among them. If the Holy God came into the world, Jesus will be the exact, will do exactly what the Father wants. You know, if you have like a close friend, they'll tell you things like, oh, can you keep the secrets? You know, the, and, and the reason why friends do that, I don't know if you, if you do that in high school or in the middle school. I did. Uh, you're like, oh, hey, I have something I got to tell you. You, can't, you promise you can't tell anyone. You know, the reason why they do that, and your friends that do it to me or I do their friends, is because there's a bond, there's a closeness, there's a unique relationship that you have with this individual that you're willing to share uh, something with. And it should be considered a privilege, you know, that there's a secret that they want to tell you. And it's like, ooh. But you know what? The disciples in Christ, he's, he's explaining the, the, the mystery of the gospel to them. There's like full disclosure. All that Jesus reveals to them is what God wanted them to know. Notice that Christ explains how their friendship began. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus chose them. In Luke chapter 6, verse 13, we know that this is literally, he chose them. He picked out the 12, he, he called them by name, he told them to follow him. John, in 1 John 4.10, talks about how there's a, there's a new, uh, let's, let's go there, 1 John 4.10, that they were, let's see, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, that we love God not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. That is because of God's love first that we're drawn to him. It's because his choice, because of his divine love towards us that we are able to go and be with him now. And it's the same idea here. He's telling, Jesus is telling the disciples that he chose them. That his, this love, this friendship that they have with one another is not because of anything that the disciple has done. It has everything to do with what God has done for them. Being chosen, this word uh, chose, is, uh, it's, it's, uh, in the Old Testament usage, is the word of being set aside. In Numbers 8.10 is, is used to describe the Levitical priest being chosen specifically to go and be a rep, an, ar- an arbiter between man and God. In Numbers 27.18, Moses uses the same word to describe choosing Joshua to take his place. Being chosen by God is not only about privilege, but it's also about purpose. Being chosen by God is not only about privilege, but also about purpose. We were chosen. We were set aside to do good works. We, all the things that we do is supposed to magnify our Savior. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And you go to, to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, and that not by yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of, of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Titus. One fourteen. Uh, sorry, Titus one eight. Uh, being uh, this is talk about the qualification of deacons that there should be 
that they should be um, holding fast and hospital, loving, devout. These are all things that you need to do outwardly. And this is part of what believers need to do is that they are supposed to do good works that God has commanded. Titus 2.8, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. And we know that the Bible teaches us that we are unable to do anything without the Lord. We have a unique role because of his choice of us before the foundation of the world to do good things that are pleasing to him. We have a unique responsibility in this world to go and do and bear fruit. God set us aside to demonstrate love to other people. So how can we show more love to those that are in our lives? We just think about practical things. You know, what, how can you make their life easier? You think about your friends or your family or your uh, coworkers. What is a way you can demonstrate love? When you think about the church, when you see people are struggling, in what ways can you make where you can demonstrate a love to them. Let me ask you this. Are you known by, by love? Is that, is, is that if people were to describe you, are you known as a loving person? Notice Jesus said towards the end of verse 16, he set aside to, to bear fruit. They are not only to bear fruit to show that they are Christ-like, but they're, they're supposed to remain in the world to draw people to Christ. It's like the parable of the sower. He's going out spreading all the seeds, and there's supposed to be fruit on the good soils, and you know, they'll grow, and then there'll be multiple and fruits, and they'll grow. So part of remaining to bear fruit is that they're supposed to go and evangelize. The greatest thing that you do for non-believers is to go and share the gospel with them. The greatest act of love to a non-believer is not all the good things that you do. Those things are fine. It should be a means to evangelism, but the greatest love that you can show them is to show them who Christ is, to tell them about our God. At the end, they are to fulfill this by depending and relying on the Lord. They are supposed to pray. Right? Chapter 14, verse 13, 14, Christ already said this, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do. And what he's saying is that all the ministry things, all the things that are about winning people to Christ, the disciples can pray to the Lord, and the Lord will fulfill them. He will be with them. He'll give them the strength to be able to go and declare God's word to the nations. And we know this because in the book of Acts, they, all, they went all out for Christ. They didn't hesitate. There was no hesitancy. They were uh, bold, and, and they saw it as an honor to suffer as long as the gospel is heard throughout the world. Our job as Christians is to be more like Christ and to draw people to Christ. The most loving thing you can do with other believers is to, to love them in any, in, and think of creative and practical ways. But the ways you can love non-believers is through evangelism. Verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. This discourse here ends like how it began. That all, that all the actions must revolve around your love for, the, for Christ. If you love Christ, you'll do what he says. And he tells us, that this I command you, that you love one another. All actions of love must be revolved around Christ. True followers of Jesus must love one another to the point where you're willing to lay down your own life as the greatest expression of love. Love is the fuel that drives all of our ministry. And as we think about these last several months, as we went through all the one another, understand that the thing that should drive you to 
confront people on sin, to reconcile with other people, to pray for one another, to sing praises to the Lord. All of these things should be driven by a love for the Lord. And when you serve other, others in the church, understand that it has to be from a love for them. It means that you have their best interests in mind. And we know as Christians that the best interest, the best thing for other people is for them to be more like Christ. It's for them to see how beautiful our Savior is. And there's two ways to do that. In the way that you live out your life, in the way that you become more Christ-like, people can look at you and see, okay, that's how our Savior is. If he was here right now, this is how he would be. That's like one way that you can, that you can practically do in your own life. And the other way is that you, you, you teach God's word to other people. When you confront sin, that's, that's, it's, it's a loving thing to do because you're pointing them to be more like Christ. You're showing them that you want to find true joy and happiness and purpose. You, you follow what the Bible has to say. And that's all should be driven by love that we have for Christ. We are to follow Christ's example. I trust that if you want to continue to grow in Christ's likeness, that you will do his commands. They, they work hand in hand. If you want to be more like Christ, you do what the Bible tells you, because the Bible tells you what, what a perfect what a, what, a perfect, what a perfect life looks like. If you're a non-believer here, you understand that you cannot love in the way that you think because you haven't experienced true love. All of the things that you do in the surface may, may seem loving, but it is absolutely nothing because in God's eyes, all of your actions are considered filthy rags. And for a non-believer to, to try to demonstrate love, understand that even that is, is, is self-serving. Because it makes them feel good about themselves. And the reason why a lot of people, when you evangelize them, they say, oh, why should, you, uh, why should God let you go to heaven? They'll say, because I'm a good person. They talk about all of the things that they do for other people and, they, and all the quote-unquote love that they share to other people. That's the way to kind of to cover their own sin. But understand, no matter how much good things or loving things that you do for other people, it does not wash away your sin. The only way for you to experience True love is understand what Christ has done on the cross for you. When you fully understand what Christ has done, when you give your life to him, then you can finally truly see how small your love is compared to the love that God has shown. Until you experience Christ's love, you will never know how, how short your best love is towards others. Even your best is nothing compared to what Christ has shown you. And if this is you, I, I, I hope that you will turn from your sin, turn from your good works, and place your faith in, in this Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe him has been judged already because he has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you want to be able to experience true love, it's not from the things in this world. It's not even the things that you do in this world. The only way you can experience true love is through knowing and receiving Christ's work on the cross on your behalf. And if you're a believer today, you're, you love because God commands us to love. You love because Christ is the example of love in our life. And if we are truly his friend, we must love because we have been loved by him. 
We love others. We love those inside the church, and we love those outside the church. We must be a people that are known by our love. People, when they see how much we love, and if we're faithful in the way that we love, they'll want to know our God. It's this natural thing that the Lord works in our lives. The people, when they see our love, they ask, like, why do you do this? When you show a tremendous amount of patience to those that are hard to get along with, the wonder, it will be noticeable to people. When you constantly do things with joy, when they ask you, why are you like this? You can point to the love that's shown to you in Christ. Love those that are in the church. You know, let go of whatever bitterness and let go of whatever uh, harm that's been done to you. Your first Peter tells that love covers a multitude of sin. We understand that because of what Christ has done, we can overlook sin. Because especially for those that are in the church, the, the brothers and sisters sinned against you, you understand their sin is also dealt with on the cross. And we must love them because Christ loves them. There's no reason for us to hold grudges or have any bitterness because all of those things are taken care of on the cross. And not just for them, but ours as well. And because of what Christ has done for us, we must love others. And if you're wondering, how, oh, I want to learn more about love, we will dive deeper in this, into this topic at the retreat. So if you haven't signed up for it, you should totally sign up, because Austin's going to knock it out of the park. With that, let's close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you have indeed loved us. We are unworthy of, what you've, of your love, yet we're recipients of it, not because of our own deeds, but because of your own grace and mercy and love. We ask that as we live about our lives, that we think, how can we re- better represent you? And not just the good things that we do, um, but to be filled with how you've loved us and allow us to think of ways that which glorifies you most. But we know that we fall short in this area of being patient and loving towards those around us, and we ask you for the grace to be able to do it. Um, Lord, we uh, want to look more into your word in our personal devotional time to see how, how infinite and vast your love is. We ask you to, to increase our heart, enlarge our heart for those that are among us and those outside the church. Uh, give us a greater heart because of how great of a God you are. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.